you would look at uh, John chapter number 11 this morning, we'll be back in John chapter 11. I've been walking through the book of John now for a number of weeks and grateful uh, to God for His timing. He knows all things and plans all things. And uh, when John was penning these words, again, 2,000 some years ago, God knew that uh, our church would need these truths at this time uh, so long ago. And he penned these for the world, but he penned them for us personally at this time and in these moments. And we'll be able to look back and rely on them all throughout our lives Uh, But I feel like God has set the timing of this particular book to match some of the needs that we have as a church, and I'm thankful for that. In fact, if you want to keep your finger there in John 11, I want you to read one verse with me in John 20. We were there, just glanced at this a few weeks ago, but I want to remind you of it. So keep your finger there in John 11. What we're going to read today and what we read last week, why did God give us the story of Lazarus? Have you ever wondered that? If God is not going to work exactly that same way now, if God is not going to take people that have physically died once on this earth and raise them from the dead to walk again for a little while and help their families rejoice and those different things, why did He give us that story in the first place? And the book of John and the gospel itself is all about faith. It's about belief or unbelief. And in John chapter 20, look down in verse 30 and 31, he tells us exactly why he told us those stories. It says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. So he says he did a lot of other works we didn't put in the book, but the ones that we put in this book through the leading of the Holy Spirit, he says, These are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. And you can go back to uh, John 11 if you would, but this passage that we're going to read this morning and finish up, the story of Lazarus, the teaching a couple weeks ago of Jesus as the gate or the door and the good shepherd, the story of Him healing this man that had been blind, uh, the story of Jesus working in these people's lives all through the book of John. Why are they there? It's so that we might believe. And not theirs that we might just believe once to convince us. Uh, John is not writing a sales pitch in his gospel. He's writing something that we can live by each and every day. When someone tries to convince you to buy a car or a cleaner, or, or I'll tell you, we, we had a little um, uh, uh, a seal that kind of came undone on part of uh, the baptistry, and it's, it's a seal going to a pipe that goes to a pump that we don't even use anymore, and we used flex seal tape to fix it. And man, it works. Uh, But when they're trying to convince you of that, buying that product, they only have to convince you once and then you buy it. And if you like it, you may buy it again, but they're not going to come back with you again to give you the sales pitch to get you to buy in again. But John is not writing his book that way, just trying to convince you to believe once. He's writing this book so that over and over and over in the doubtful moments of our life, we can keep coming back and we can keep believing that Jesus is the Son of God and has risen from the dead and has brought us and called us as a people to Himself, saved us from our sins, and now we can live by faith in Him. And so as we read last week, we covered a large portion of John 
chapter number 11. In fact, most of the book, verses 1 through 44, and trying to attack all of those verses in one sermon was difficult, but I think we managed to walk through that. And really what we discussed, the emphasis that we took from that was really the purpose, the things that Jesus was trying to teach Mary and Martha and even Lazarus as he rose from the dead. He was trying to show that he loved them. He said over and over from the side, he says, the one whom you love is sick. And then it goes on a few verses later, it says, now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Later, Jesus says that our friend, we go to our friend, he used a loving term for them. When Jesus wept before the tomb, what did the Jews say? They say, oh, how he loved, the, loved him. So he says, I love you. And his message to us today was, I love you. And so his message is that Jesus loves you, but then we also said more than that, that Jesus knows what he's doing. Remember it says at the beginning of the chapter, if you want to glance there before we get into our text for today, it says, Therefore uh, his sisters sent him unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And then verse 4 of chapter 11 says, When Jesus heard that, he said, uh, this sickness is not unto death for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick. Remember that word, therefore, means so. So it says Jesus loved them, and so he waited. Why? Because he knows what he's doing. But we said that even more importantly than those, and though they're wonderful truths, they all go together. Because it doesn't matter if Jesus just loves us. And it doesn't matter that he knows what he's doing if he's not in control. And we said that that's the, the thing that brings that picture all together is not only does he love us and not only does he know what he's doing, he can work through that because he's also in control. Unlike our relationship with other humans where someone may love us and someone even may know what they're doing, but if they're not in control, it doesn't matter. But Jesus is all of those things. And we brought to the end of our passage last week, Jesus cries in verse 43 with a loud voice. And Lazarus, he says, come forth. And then notice how this ginormous, in a way, story ends so quickly. For 43 verses, it gives us a lot of detail compared to some other portions of Scripture. So you'd think this is going to be probably one of Jesus' most climactic miracles. In fact, it is really the last big miracle that he works before he enters that last week or that Passion Week there before the Passover and uh, before he gives his life for us. So he gives us all this detail. And then how does it end? This big, impressive miracle. Verse 43, cry with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was bound with a napkin, and Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. We talked about how that was uh, a kind of a, a fore picture or a glorifying picture of Christ, and that when Christ rose from the dead, no one had to loose him. And it says his napkin was folded and, and placed in somewhere else. So though he rose, Lazarus, raised Lazarus from the dead in his own power, he raised to new life in his own power, giving us access to resurrection. And how does this story end? What is it going to tell us about Mary? What was their reaction? What was Martha's reaction? How did Lazarus live after being raised from the dead one time? You'd think he would live with, with no real fear of death, right? No real anxiety about that. He's experienced it once and he knows of Jesus' power. So how did they live? What, what was their reaction to this? How did Mary and Martha respond to this? Well, interestingly enough, if you look at verse 45, it really does not tell us. The story of Lazarus raising from the dead 
in a way, physically, our, the description is over, and it's ended. And now John's going to tell us something very different. I, I kind of want to know what happened. What did they say? Where did they go? What did the Jews do? How did the disciples respond? But John kind of skips all that. Why? Because he knows through the leading of the Holy Spirit what we need to see. And look at verse 45. This is where our text is going to begin today. It says, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. And I'm glad that this morning, if we live our lives conscious of the fact that Jesus loves us, that He knows what He's doing, and we trust Him because He's in full control, that there are moments in life where that will point others to Christ, and hope, hopefully they will also believe on Him. But then He gives us an interesting story as we finish out the chapter, really having nothing to do really with Lazarus, but their other people and their response. Look at verse 46. So some believe, but verse 46 says, But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. So they kind of eh, eh, tattled. Okay? Oh my goodness, the Pharisees need to know this. Jesus, he didn't just heal a blind man, and he's not just teaching radical things for us. He raised someone from the dead. Let's go tell the Pharisees and see what they think about this. Look at verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we, for this man doeth many miracles? Think about the Pharisees' reaction to so many miracles, right? Jesus raises a man, that, or Jesus heals a man that was crippled from birth, and the Pharisees' response is, why are you carrying your mat around on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to be doing that rather than seeing the miracle. Jesus heals a man that could not see from birth and he goes to the temple to worship. He does these things. And the Pharisees' concern was, he healed you on the Sabbath? They don't care that a man that was blind can now see. And now Jesus raises someone from the dead. So surely they get it, right? Wow, this is incredible. What problem could they find with this? Look at verse 48. If we leave him thus alone, all men will believe on him. Okay, that sounds good. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. So they hear Jesus raised man from the dead, and they didn't doubt. They didn't say, well, was he really dead? Do you know that he was dead? These people never doubted once that Jesus raised someone from the dead. They didn't give false proofs. They didn't argue back and forth. They said, wow, if he keeps doing this, the Romans are going to come. And remember, the Jewish people, unlike anywhere else in the Roman Empire, have been allowed to kind of keep their government, their society, their culture. They've been allowed to keep all of those things and set up kind of their own little nation within the Roman Empire the Pharisees had a lot of clout and they had a lot of ruling ability. Uh, they kind of had their own little, almost a little puppet government that they set up within the power of the Roman government. But they knew if the Roman government finds out that someone has power to raise the dead. They're, they're, people are going to look to them or to him as their king and the Romans are going to come down and they're going to squash that. And they're going to turn us like the whole rest of the Roman Empire. They're going to keep a, a tighter hand on it. They're going to take away our privilege, and they're going to take away our power. And because of that, notice what it says in verse number 49. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. So what's going to be their reaction to this? Don't you like it when you tell, somebody tells you, you don't have a clue. That's what Caiaphas is saying. 
He says, this is a good thing. Notice in verse 40, notice in verse 50, nor consider that it is expedient for us. That word expedient means kind of it's your, it's to your advantage. You don't see the good that could come from Jesus raising someone from the dead. Then notice how he ends verse 50, that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. He says, we have a reason to kill Jesus now. Now we have something to go get him on because we have to protect the nation of Israel. And if he's going to raise people from the dead, the Romans will come and take away the nation of Israel from This is the high priest talking again. They're going to come take this all away. Now we must murder Jesus. And it's, it doesn't matter if he's done a crime guilty of death. It doesn't matter if we can prove anything in trial. He must die so that the nation of Israel could live. And he meant it in a sinful way. But look at verse 51. And this spake he not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied, he accidentally prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation of Israel. But then notice what John adds. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. And then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among them, but went thence into a country near unto the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. And many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple. What think ye that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and Pharisees had given commandment, given a commandment that if any man knew where he was, he should show it or tell it that they might take him. Let's pray and ask God to bless his word this morning. Lord, we ask you in these moments that we have together that you'd teach us, guide us and direct us. Show us what you have for us to know and help us to be joyful in that you died for all people. and That you died not just for the nation of Israel and not just for those that are good or think they are good, but you died for all men. That you're calling all men to yourselves and we'll praise you for it in your name. Amen. We mentioned earlier that the gospel from start to finish is about faith. The book of John is about believing. He just said it just a moment ago as we read in John 20. He says, I tell you all these things so that you believe. But it comes to every person that is confronted with the gospel and with Jesus Christ is brought into one of two categories, belief or unbelief, faith or no faith, trust or distrust and rejection. John never teaches really about any in-between place where somebody kind of believes or sort of believes or fully believes a lot and really serves or kind of believe but not as strong of a Christian and then there's people that reject and disbelieve. There is one or the other. And every person in this room this morning, no matter of age or creed or culture, where you're from or what you've done in this life, has come to the place in life where you believe or you do not believe. And just because someone is in church for a long time or we grow up in Christian families does not necessarily mean immediately that we are going to believe. In fact, there are people that sit in churches all over this country and world this morning that have pretended or have gone along, maybe not even fully sure in their own minds, but there is just a lack of overall faith. 
they may be attending so that they go with a spouse. It may be a young person that is coming with their parents. It may be somebody that's going so morally they feel like they're doing the right thing. But God does not call us to do things. He calls us first to Himself. He calls us to believe. And Jesus, everywhere that He goes, and sometimes we like to think about this, and we like to claim this in a different way, everywhere that Jesus goes, He seems to cause division. But not that he goes in and stirs things up. Well, I have an opinion and I'm going to make, I'm going to, oh, I love the argument. I love the anger. Though those, some things happen, debates happen back and forth. And some of those things happen. The division came that people believed or that they did not. John chapter 7 says twice that there was a division among them. Some believed and some did not. John chapter 10, after he teaches about the door and being the good shepherd, he says some believed, but others argued and said that they did not. And then now, in verse number, or chapter number 11, he raises a man from the dead and it says some believed and some did not. It's not that Jesus caused division with his opinion, and it's not that Jesus caused division with his teaching, though those things may have happened. It's not that Jesus got into the nuances of some sort of Christian faith or not. He did teach doctrine. He did teach those things. But the most radical and vicious division that people thought about Jesus was, is he the Son of God and Messiah, or is he not? Because if he is not, he deserves to die. And if he is, then he deserves that we live for him. Some of us may be in a spot this morning. It's mostly our church people this morning that are familiar, and we, we come here, and we're here, and we, we, may, we may never even cross our minds that we are struggling with our faith in God. Maybe not for salvation. Maybe you say, well, I really believe in God for salvation. Maybe I have faith in salvation. Maybe you don't. Maybe you are wondering. Maybe we don't want to go forward. Maybe we don't want to speak to somebody because we may be judged. Well, you've been in church all this time and pretending to know God, pretending to know Jesus. Oh, when we would scoff at you, or almost like we'd have to start all over again in our Christian faith and we'll lose our spot in the church. But if not, you'll lose your spot in God's family and in God's kingdom and in eternity. And there is no person or opinion in this world worth putting off the rejoicing and acceptance of the gospel. And so this morning, we invite you like Jesus to come with no judgment and no saying, well, how long have someone been in church? How long has someone not been in church? Well, they smile or they wear the right things or they do the right stuff or they say the right things. That is not what John teaches you at all. I show you these miracles and teachings so that you'll have your life exactly the way it should be, though God guides us to those things. It's not what it says. We're going to teach you and show you these things so every word of your doctrine is perfect. And though those things are important, that's not what he says. He says, we're going to teach you these things so that you first believe and find life in his name. I think I read somewhere that one man put a quote. He says, I, I think it is harder to grow up as a serious Christian in the South than it is in the North. He says, because in the South, you have so many more opportunities to hide it. You can wear a smile, you can put on clothes, and you can go to church, and no one will question whether you believe or not. Jesus constantly whittled down his crowd. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus heals, or Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then very quickly he teaches about he's the bread of life and those different things, and people reject, and they go home. Why? Because he's whittling down to who really believes. 
Jesus heals, he does these different things, and a massive crowd follows him, and he turns, he says, if you really want to be my disciple, you have to reject your father, your mother, your children, your family, your friends, and follow me full out. If you really want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. If you really want to be my disciple, you have to forsake all that you have and lay down your life for me. And the Bible says a lot of them went home because they could not believe in that way. Many of them were willing to believe in God for good things, to believe in God to save them from their sins, to believe in God to give them what they needed, but they would not believe in God enough to really follow Him. And the Bible is teaching that even though Lazarus raised from the dead, we would think, oh, if I could just see a miracle. Have you ever felt like that? Like, my faith would be strong if I could just see it. If I could have lived when they did, I could believe a whole lot more because in my lifetime, I'm 32 years old. or You may be a little older than that or a little more older than that or whatever it may be. And you've lived your life and you have come to the place and you say, well, I have never really seen anything really just praying physical happen out of the blue. We've all seen good things and miracles and God work in different ways. But if I could just see a miracle, these people saw a man rotting and decaying and they saw his body reformed and given breath and life and they still couldn't believe. It is not about what you see. It is about the working of God and the Holy Spirit in your heart and whether you're willing to submit to Him. It's about whether or not I will give myself to Christ. It takes a humbleness of mind and spirit. No, Pharisees, it wasn't that they could not accept Christ because they were confused or they were so smart or they had so much knowledge. It's that they could not humble themselves. It's that they could not put away their own religion and their own beliefs and their own goodness and their own clout and as they described it, their own place in society, their own things. They couldn't put away their own power and privilege. They had to keep it for themselves. Because they knew if they believed in Christ, they'd have to give it all away. Because Jesus says, you are all equal in my sight. It doesn't matter how much you have memorized. It doesn't matter how much of the law you obey. You must trust in me because your righteousness is as filthy rags. And if you're going to come to me for salvation, you have to admit that all of those things that you have done and everything you've done in your life is worth nothing without me changing and saving your life by the power of the gospel. And the Pharisees could not do it. They said, we can't give these things up. They were not impressed with Jesus because of what he asked of their lives. Some of us this morning may be struggling. We may not be very impressed with God. Though we may have seen a physical miracle, he has given us in his word all that we need. So I ask you a couple questions this morning. Have you closed your eyes like these people to the power of God? It wasn't that they didn't see what they needed to see. It is that spiritually they would not see what they needed to see. They had already determined in their minds that they were going to believe or not believe in what Jesus was. They had already formed in their own minds if they could use Jesus, they would use Him. If He could be to their benefit. If Jesus would have said, look at these Pharisees healed the sick, fed the hungry, raised people from the dead, and then turned and said, look how great the Pharisees are. They'd have been like, yes, Jesus is amazing. But because it was all about Him, they did not like it. 
And so have you turned your eyes from the power of God because the power of God is not all about you. They saw miracles, but they squinted hard enough that they couldn't see the Messiah. There's a second question. Have you hardened your heart to the Son of God? Have you ignored the power of God in this world, but have you hardened your heart to the Son of God? Verse 47 says, if you go there, it says, Then gather the chief priests and the Pharisees in council. What do we? This man doeth many miracles. So they had seen his miracles. But they were so hard against him that they were willing to murder him because he did not fit into their plan. I wonder this morning if some of us have hardened our hearts to the speaking of God's Spirit and to the message and the calling of His Son because what He says does not fit in our plan. And what He has done does not match what we think He should have done. And because how He is working in this world doesn't match how we want our world to function and exist. Sometimes we ignore God or we fail to believe one, in salvation, or two, in a daily manner, we fail to give our lives. What does belief look like after salvation? Have you ever wondered about that? I show belief in trusting God for my salvation. We're going to see even baptism today, a physical outward statement of faith in God. But then what does it look like in everyday life? It looks like submission to His will. It looks like giving myself to His care. It looks like serving Him with all that I have, but some of us can't do it because of what it would affect. What are you afraid this morning that if you gave your life fully to Christ, what are you afraid that it might affect? What are you afraid that it might take away? What are you afraid that you might have to change if you really wholly gave yourself to Christ this morning? What are you nervous about Notice what these people were nervous about. He says in verse 48, If we leave him alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. He says if we leave Jesus alone to do what he's going to do, not even just believe in him, it's going to change everything that we have. It's going to change what I can think about myself. If I really believe what Jesus says in his word about me, I have to lower what I think about myself. It's not that God is privileged to save such a wonderful person like me. Like I, like hiring someone to a business. You are an asset to our business. There is no one in this room this morning or across this world that has ever lived in the history of time that is an asset to the kingdom of God on their own. It is only through the grace and the working and the power of God, which means I have to change how I think about others. Because I am no more of an asset for the kingdom of God than someone else is. I am no better for Jesus to save. It doesn't help Jesus to save me more than it helps Him to save the most lost person in this world. You could go down to a street corner and find someone passed out on drugs and it would make no difference in the kingdom of God if He saves me or if He saves that person in the sense of what He can do in that person's life. He can change anyone. He can do anything. And if I truly believe in Christ as the Messiah and the Lord God of all things, I will stop seeing status. I will stop seeing possessions. I will stop seeing wealth. I will stop seeing 
culture. I will stop seeing where someone is in society. I will stop seeing what someone says and what someone does. I will stop seeing what they look like or what they don't look like. I will stop seeing how much they're like me or they're not like me. And I will see a soul that Jesus miraculously, graciously wants to save just like mine. And I won't watch the news and think so judgmentally of someone that I see on there, how awful someone is, or what they said is disgusting, or what they have done is awful. I will see someone in need of Christ just like me. But when I want to think of myself the way I want to think of myself, I can watch the news, I can read a website, and I can look at the paper and feel great by the time I'm done. But if I pick up God's Word I'll be sick of myself because I am nothing special. And because God wants to work in us, these people said He'll take away our nascent. He'll take away our privilege. He'll take away our power. What is it this morning that you're afraid Jesus may take away? He may take away someone's opinion about you. He may take away how highly someone thinks about you if I really submit to him. If I go and confess some sin in accountability to somebody, if I go ask somebody to help me in my daily life and lift me up in an area I'm struggling, they're going to think so ill of me. I can't do that. God's commanded us to. If I go and I help in this person and I, and I go to witness to this person or if I go and I minister to these people's lives, if I have these people into my house, if I sit with these people and build a relationship with these people, people will think ill of me. They'll turn their nose up at me the same way the Pharisees did when they looked at Jesus and said, He sits with sinners. He goes to Zacchaeus' house. He's talking to a nasty woman at a well. He's talking to somebody that does not believe. He's talking to Gentiles and Pharisees. They'll think of us the same way they may think they may have thought of Christ. And sometimes at the bottom of what we fear, it's what we may have to give up to give our life to Christ. I want to finish with this. There is a huge, huge truth here. And it is why I believe that Jesus, or that John, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, does not give us a lot of detail about what happened after Jesus or Lazarus raised from the dead. Why didn't he give us those details? Why doesn't he tell us how people responded to Lazarus? I wonder if Lazarus was like, people looked at him highly, like, yeah, if that guy raised from the dead, we should probably put him on the city council. We might write him in on Tuesday, right? He's been there and back. Maybe we should... We should look to this guy a little. Or Mary and Martha. Man, Jesus must really love them if he did that. But we're not told of that. Because there's a bigger truth that John wants us to see. It's a pretty big truth that Jesus can raise someone from the dead. But I want you to notice an even greater truth. Found in verse 51. And this, or, or sorry, in verse 50. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. And that the whole nation perished not. And this spake he, not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. But then notice this, and not for that nation only. And get this, it is so big. Why? Because it impacts you. Because I doubt very highly this morning if in this room 
sits a direct and pure descendant of the nation of Israel. We read the New Testament often, putting ourselves, and the Old Testament, putting ourselves, like, because we're Christians, we are, we kind of equate ourselves to that. But without the grace of Christ and Him including other nations, we would all be lost. Because we are all from other nations, regardless of creed or race or background or culture, we are all lost. Why? What does it say in verse 52? And not for that nation only. There is not a type of people that Jesus wants to save. There is not a group of people that Jesus wants this church to reach out toward. There is not a place in Richmond that Jesus wants us to focus on. There is not a geographic sector or community. There is not some place where Jesus is saying, go in there because that's where you really need to find some people. They match your church. It doesn't say that. It says that for not for that nation only, but also that He should gather together in one. Not different segments and not make different types of Christians. In one, the children of God that were scattered Abroad. Notice he already calls them children, the ones that he's going to save. That God died for all people so that we could all become the children of God. And the greater truth in this story that John is trying to point out, he leads us for 44 verses saying, look at the power of God as he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, John says, look at the power of Christ because he can do it for everyone. The story of power here is not that one man started to breathe again and came out of a grave. And though that is amazing, the greatest story of power here is that John says, remember he's writing this years after, years after Jesus has died and risen from the dead. And years after God has started working and saving in these people's lives. He's writing it years after. So it's kind of like the movie that shows you a little bit of the end. Then it goes back, gives you the backstory, and then it brings you to it again. John's kind of doing that. He's saying, he saved these people. Let me tell you something bigger is what John says. He's going to do it for anyone and everyone that will call on his name. And the huge story is not that Lazarus raised from the dead, but it is that I, it is that you, it is that my dad, it is that your loved one, it is that your friend, that he can do it for us all. And the wonderful story of the resurrection of Lazarus is that Jesus had greater plans. That he would do this himself. Remember we said Lazarus raising from the dead last week. We said it wasn't perfect. Why? Because he was going to die again. But Jesus raised from the dead to never die again. And so that we have once faced death. He has faced it for us all. And we will once face death never to face it again. And Jesus teaching us something here, not just for that nation. This would have been a big deal for the Jews and for these Pharisees if they would have realized Jesus is not here to save a type of people. He is not here to save one nation. He is here to call all children that He can to Himself. And I want you to note this as we finish. What is the big thing here? What is the big truth for us as believers? That God was working in this plan all the while for good, that God has substitution at the heart of our faith. You say, what do you mean substitution? That God allowed His Son to go through the same thing Lazarus did, but far worse in the method of His death, because He allowed Him to be substituted for us. He allowed Him to die for our sin. 
and not just for you and not just for me, but for your neighbor, for your loved one, for the family member and friend that you just feel like will never believe, for the people that you read about that you have never met that may be across this world that are so different than you, Jesus died for them too. A few weeks ago, remember we talked about Jonah? Jonah didn't want to go bring his message to the Ninevites because they were nasty, scary people with a different religion that terrorized everyone around them by killing and displaying terror for all to see. And that's why he didn't want them to be saved. Hey, this morning Jesus wants to save people of a different faith and religion, people of a different background that have terror in their hearts. Jesus wants to save all men. The Christian body, the church of Christ, truly should be the most diverse thing that anyone could ever look at in this world. We hear a lot about diversity in our day, and some people think different ways about it than others. Let me tell you, this should be the most diverse room in our community. This should be the most diverse body of any society or of any culture. There shouldn't be any club. There shouldn't be any group more diverse than this group. Why? Because our message to the world is Jesus saves any and all. And so this morning I wonder if we've gotten the message that he was giving to Lazarus, that he was giving to those around them, that Jesus wants all men, regardless of language, culture, society, or creed, Jesus wants to save all. And I wonder this morning, do you believe it? Do you truly believe in your heart of hearts that Jesus wants to save. Every head bowed and every eyes closed this morning. If we do, if you really believe, does your life look like it? I imagine that Jesus, as he was witnessing, as he was dealing with different people, I imagine that after he raised Lazarus from the dead, I would think Lazarus may have become the greatest soul winner the world had ever known because of what God had done in his life. But I wonder, do we as individuals, do we as a church, really love and care about people the way that Jesus does? Because if we did, I feel like our lives might just look a little bit different. I'm going to read for you a song. I'll read Actually, I'll read it in a moment. I want, to, I want to pray and ask God to help us this morning. And this issue and others, whatever God is working in our hearts, you may need to come give your heart to Christ here at this altar. If you are lost and you say, well, I'm I just not sure I, that I do believe, then you come as well. We'll have people that meet and, and talk, speak with you, speak with us after. But maybe as a church this morning, we just need to believe what Jesus said about us instead of what we want to think about ourselves. We're no different. We're no more special. But for grace.